0: And if you need a Bible, if you want a Bible, there are some Bibles out on the welcome table. You can grab them. Uh, And they're the same translation that we use here on uh, on the screen. And if you don't have a Bible at home, just keep that one. Take that one with you. That's our gift to you. So um, we're going to continue in the book of Revelation, all things new, hope at the revelation of King Jesus. Uh, We are in chapter 8 this morning. Well, if you are to build a foundation for a house, I don't recommend that you use pillows to build a foundation. Seems pretty obvious. And If you're building, children, a fort in your living room, I don't recommend that you use concrete blocks. Your family will not appreciate that. The reality is that there are things, when you're building something, some things need to be hard and some things need to be soft. This book is asking some questions that allow us to ask whether or not we, ourselves, should be hard or soft. This book has a lot of things about persecution and suffering, about things that we as Christians will endure. And the question is, should we be hard and tough, or should we be soft? What do we need to be, hard or soft? The thing that is needed to endure, I would argue, is not hardness, but softness. A softness of heart. That's what the main focus for us this morning is going to be, is what does it look like to create softness of heart? We are entering into a new section of the book Uh, Remember, there are seven sections to this book, and last week we finished a very large section, right? We took a big chunk of scripture, and uh, we finished section two of seven. We are starting section three this morning, uh, and we'll finish section three next week. So we're going to split this up just a little bit. But if you remember, section uh, two ended with the breaking of the seventh seal, right? There was this scroll that uh, Jesus was only, only Jesus was worthy to take and he broke the seven seals and it laid out the, judgment, the plan of judgment and salvation for the world. And the breaking of the seventh seal was the end of the world. Remember, the book of Revelation describes the end of the world multiple times and it's this sort of spiral of ratcheting up the intensity throughout the book. If you're new to us this morning, uh, well, strap in. We're ready to go. We're right in the book of Revelation. There's a lot of weird stuff that happens here. We're going to try and explain it as we go. Um, But if you are confused a little bit, uh, I did an overview sermon that kind of helps understand a little bit of where we're going and how we're getting to there. And so if you want to listen to that, that's on our website as well. That might help uh, explain a few of the things. But, But we'll try to explain it as we go along as well. All right, so this is the beginning of the third section of the book. Then the seven angels with the seven trumpets prepared to blow their mighty blasts. Now the main focus of this new section of the book is going to be on judgment. Which we talked about judgment last week, but we talked about judgment and salvation, this plan of judgment and salvation, which caused suffering for the world that both Christians and non-Christians would endure it would have the purifying effect on Christians that we would endure this suffering and purify our faith. And it would have the effect of judgment upon the wicked. This, that's still true. That section is still true. This is just taking a different angle. Remember, these sections of the book are kind of like replays in a football game. Looking at a different angle and hitting a different spot of the exact same time frame. And so in this Angle that it's looking at, it looks exclusively at the, on the judgment of the unrepentant. So this section is largely focusing on judgment upon those who are unrepentant. And the background to this is really the book of Exodus and the plagues that go forth on Egypt. Uh, if you were with us as we went through the book of Exodus over the course of, I think it took us several years to finish the book of Exodus, but we, we did go through the book of Exodus, and if you remember, the plagues of Exodus were given certainly to free Israel, but also to declare the glory of God in front of Egypt and in front of Israel to say, I am God, and I am God alone. Every single one of these plagues focused its attention on a specific God that the Egyptians would worship. And it was intentional to go after those gods to say, these are no gods at all. You, if you want to worship God, you need to get on the side of the God of Israel. Because he is the only true God. And some Egyptians followed with the Israelites out. If you remember, it's a mixed multitude that comes out of Egypt. So there are some Egyptians that say, in light of these plagues, oh my goodness, I am going with this God and with these people, because this is real, this is glory, and I am following. But for many of them, including Pharaoh himself, the plagues only caused a more of a hardness of hearts. Pharaoh would say, sure, Israel, you can go. And then immediately he'd change his mind, and he'd be like, no, 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 wait, no, you can't go. Actually, I'm going to make things worse for you. And he hardened his heart over and over again. The plagues that, we're, that John's going to be describing here function in that way, causing a hardness of heart among the unrepentant and continuing that hardness of heart, a refusal to repent. So that's the background uh, that, that John has in mind as he begins to walk through those things. So, so keep that in mind as we come through this section of the book. All right. The first angel blew his trumpet, and hail and fire mixed with blood were thrown down on the earth. One-third of the earth was set on fire, one-third of the trees were burned, and all the green grass was burned. Now, if you remember, the last section that we were in talked about a quarter of the earth being affected by these things. Now it's a third of the earth. Well, it's not like John is saying, well, well, it's a third... In addition to this quarter that was gone, because if you keep adding that up, the earth ends up being like, you know, eight, eight parts, right? <laughs> not, not like one full thing, right? Because this is the same time frame, but a third is more than a quarter. Remember, it's ratcheting up the intensity every time. That's the, 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 the picture that we're seeing. Now, this that's coming down, hail, fire, mixed with blood, were thrown down on the earth, and the grass is affected. The trees are affected. This is to signify famine. Famine coming upon the earth. Uh, That's what we believe this first trumpet signifies. Now, this could be, uh, we saw famine uh, with one of the horsemen from last section, right? And that was, we thought, a, a very literal famine that would affect people on earth. This could be a literal famine. It could also be a spiritual famine. Because of the way in which this ratchets up and the focus of these seven trumpets, there is some commentators who argue that this is a spiritual famine, a lack of connection with God, a spiritual famine existing on the planet. So it could be either of those. We're we're not 100% sure. What we do know is that the language of fire and hail and blood is figurative. So we're not expecting fire and hail and blood to fall down from heaven uh, when this starts, but that this is actually happening currently. Famine is happening currently. All right. The second trumpet is born, or is blown. My plan here, just to let you guys know, we're going to walk through this text, explain these pieces, and then we're going to see what we can learn from them. So I'm trying to explain what is happening so we get a bearings on what's happening, and then we'll apply and figure out how does this apply to us. The second angel blew his trumpet and a great mountain of fire was thrown into the sea. One third of the water in the sea became blood. One third of all living things in the sea died. And one third of all the ships on the sea were destroyed. We're going to see the first one affected land. This one affects sea. We're going to see the next one is affecting the heavens, which is really the reverse of creation. This is a a sort of a de-creation. It's Descending in the opposite direction of creation, affecting the earth. So, we believe this is more famine that is affecting the earth. A mountain, uh, sometimes a mountain figuratively is used to describe a nation or a kingdom. And so, this could be the overthrow of some nation or kingdom that exists, or the continual overflow or overthrow of nations and kingdoms, right, that exists throughout the history of the world that causes suffering and famine. Then the third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from the sky, burning like a torch. It fell on one-third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star was Bitterness, or Wormwood, yes. Uh, It made one-third of the water bitter, and many people died from drinking the bitter water. This, again, signifying the same thing, this increasing famine that exists upon the world, either spiritual or physical. Then the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and one-third of the sun was struck, and one-third of the moon, and one-third of the stars, and they became dark. And one-third of the day was dark, and also one-third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard a single eagle crying loudly as it flew through the air. Terror, terror, terror. Terror to all who belong to this world because of what will happen when the last three angels blow their trumpets. It ends with this increasing darkness, a spiritual darkness that falls upon the world. Certainly there is physical darkness displayed here, but certainly the way in which this plays out, we believe, is a spiritual darkness that exists in the world. That comes upon the wicked. When it talks about those who belong to this world, remember we talked about those who were marked or sealed by God are those who belong to God. And those who were marked or sealed, we'll see later, by the beast or by Satan belong to this world. And what it means to be marked by God is to believe in Jesus. This sealing is to believe in Jesus. Jesus. To go and dip your robes in the blood of the Lamb, to trust in Christ. So, when it uses this phrase, those who belong to this world, it's talking about not those sealed by God, right? The unrepentant. Now, things are just going to ratchet up and get a little weird, all right? So, remember, apocalyptic literature, the design of it is to kind of shock us into being awakened. that's the design of this. And so it's going to ratchet up uh, some intensity in the images. Then the fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star that had fallen to earth from the sky. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Now, a star falling from the sky often is a reference to an angel. And immediately it gives this angel personhood, right? He was given the key to the shaft. So we, we don't think this is a star. We think this is an angel. This could be Satan. Satan. Or another fallen angel. But given the way in which it, uh, the, this bottomless pit is described later, we do think this is Satan describing Satan being thrown down to earth. When he opened it, smoke poured out as though from a huge furnace, and the sunlight and air turned dark from the smoke. Then locusts came from the smoke and descended on the earth. Remember, again, the Egyptian plagues, right? The water was turned to blood. There was darkness. There was locusts, right? All of these are part of that same flow and saying this is the ultimate result of the plagues of Egypt. This is ratcheted up across the whole globe. Uh, Then locusts came from the smoke and descended on the earth and they were given power to sting like scorpions. They were told not to harm the grass or plants or trees but only the people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Okay, so we've moved beyond famine to now affecting people, or to affect people. Now, not the ones who have the seal of God on their foreheads. Remember last week we said, as the seals were broken, as Jesus was breaking these seals, these were things that were going to be experienced by all people, Christian and non-Christian alike. So it's not saying that Christians will not experience any level of suffering. Again, this is a focus on the suffering of judgment upon the wicked. That's the focus of this section. And so these locusts are to affect them. They were told not to kill them, but to torture them for five months with pain like the the pain of a scorpion sting. Now, I don't know exactly what the five months refers to. Numbers typically have some meaning. Uh, Couldn't find anything that, that succinctly describes what this five months means, other than it's a temporary time period, right? Meaning that as we're Stepping up through this, it's not the final judgment yet, right? When we get to the seventh trumpet, just like when we got to the seventh seal, we're talking about final judgment. So this is before then, during the time period of the church, meaning now. This is ongoing now. And it's temporary. In those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. It's a pretty terrifying description. And something that this section is meant to elicit in us is some terror of that and some brokenness and weariness. And we'll talk about that in a moment. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. They had what looked like gold crowns on their heads and their faces looked like human faces. Now, when this translation uses the word like, there is a word in here in the Greek, That's like, right? Meaning, this is not a one-to-one description. John is not describing exactly a picture of these literal locusts with human faces, right? That's not what he's describing. He's saying in apocalyptic prophetic language, right? You see this in Ezekiel and other places where you see a picture into the throne room of heaven or see a picture of the future or something, and you don't know how to describe it. John doesn't have language to describe this, so he's like, well, it's kind of like this thing that you guys all see and know, but but not exactly like that. It's a little bit more terrifying, right? A locust is really annoying. A locust that looks like a horse with a human face and armor, that's more than just a little annoying. That's terrifying. That's the point, right? So again, not describing a physical thing figurative language to describe this reality. And certainly not describing, as some would say, an Apache helicopter. No, no, no. That's, that's not what John is describing here. He's not like looking into the future and like, oh, I don't even know what a helicopter looks like. You know what that looks like? That looks like a locust with a human face and some hair. Like, no, no, that's not what he's doing here, right? He's just describing in language that people would recognize, put together this terrifying creature to describe the terror That is coming. Very real terror that is coming. They had hair like woman's hair and teeth like the teeth of a lion. They wore armor made of iron and their wings roared like an army of chariots rushing into battle. They had tails that stung like scorpions and for five months they had the power to torment people. Their king is the angel from the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abandon, and in Greek Apollyon, the destroyer. The first terror is past, but look, two more terrors are coming. So again, Satan is given authority to torture. He's given authority to bring darkness, spiritual darkness upon the world. We do I, I do think that. As John is describing in the way in which he's been describing, I do think he's describing a spiritual suffering in darkness. I don't think he's describing a modern military force or some physical suffering that exists. And I'll talk about that in a moment when we get to the sixth angel, why I think that part of that. But regardless of what it is, it is figurative language to describe judgment through demonic armies. Judgment through demonic armies. That's the point of this. That there is some level of judgment coming upon the wicked, an experience today that I believe is related to spiritual darkness that those who are unrepentant face and feel that is happening currently. All right, the sixth angel. The sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice speaking from the four horns of the gold altar, altar that stands in the presence of God. And the voice said, the sixth angel who held said to the sixth angel who held the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great Euphrates River. Okay, so we're hearing this voice from amongst the altar. This is probably the voice of Jesus speaking to this angel who's blowing the trumpet. And he says, release the four angels who are bound at the great river, uh, Euphrates River. So, because these four angels are bound, again, we think this is probably demonic angels, right? Fallen angels, spiritual beings under the power of Satan, that have been bound. Now, what is it about the Euphrates River? Well, for Israel, the Euphrates River is north. Their enemies consistently came from the north. So all we think John is saying here is enemies of God's people are coming. That's it. Right? So that's figurative language, again, to describe something. So I don't think that we're talking about four literal angels at the Euphrates River, so we should watch out and probably not build anything along the Euphrates. Like, that would be a bad idea, right? I don't think that that's what he's talking about. I think he's saying that there is a force coming against from those who are enemies of God's people, and this is a demonic force, not... Not a physical army force like Israel faced in the past. Then the four angels who had been prepared for this hour and day and month and year were turned loose to kill one third of all people on the earth. I heard the size of their army, which was 200 million mounted troops. Now that's a best guess at the other translations would use myriad of myriads. Like, really big number. That's what John's saying. Lots and lots of troops. And in my vision, I saw the horses and the riders sitting on them. The riders wore armor that was fiery red and dark blue and yellow. The horses had heads like lions, and fire and smoke and burning sulfur billowed from their mouths. One third of all people on the earth were killed by these three plagues, by the fire and smoke and burning sulfur that came from the mouths of the horses. Oh, oh there it goes. Yeah, there we go. Okay. It's working again. <laughs> their power was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails had heads like snakes with the power to injure people. All right, so this sixth trumpet is blown, and uh, in his commentary on this section, G.K. Beale uh, describes these and actually says that he believes that this army represents false teaching that goes out throughout the world. And the reason he says that is because it says that their power... The power of this army, this huge army, has the power to kill and destroy. And their power was in their mouths and in their tails. And the reason the power is in their tails is because their tails had heads like snakes. Referring to the serpent who deceives. And so again, all of this is flowing in a direction of talking about spiritual suffering, deception, and destruction coming from those demonic forces of deception. So it could be speaking about some level of physical suffering that causes people to die. Or it could be talking about the reality of false teaching that deceives people into spiritual death. Both of those are intensely true. And actually, if you look at, remember back to the letters that John uh, is told to send to the churches, one of the emphasis throughout those letters is to avoid false teaching. And so this could be the reality that what John is describing here is the very thing that he was warning about earlier. To avoid false teaching. To cling to the truth about Jesus. Okay, the point of all of these pieces, okay? So if you've been super confused, that's okay. It's apocalyptic literature. I'm going to tell you the point of all of this stuff. John tells us in Nine verses twenty and twenty one. But the people who did not die in these plagues still refused to repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. They continued to worship demons and idols made of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that can neither see nor hear nor walk, and they did not repent of their murders or their witchcraft or their sexual immorality or their thefts. This text is ultimately seeking to display the judgment against the wicked. The judgment against those who are unrepentant for their sins is inevitable. It is certain. It will come. There will be no ultimate mocking of God in the end. There is no, I will reject you, God, because I don't want you and therefore you can't have me. God will not be mocked. He will have, He will display His righteousness and His holiness and His justice either in the wrath upon Jesus in the cross or in the wrath displayed upon the wicked. This is in part an answer to the how long cry that we talked about last week from the martyred saints, crying out, "How long, O Lord, will you let us be persecuted? How long will you let us die?" This is part of God's answer. I will answer, I will judge, I will vindicate my holy name. Babylon will fall. The empire will go down. It is not going to last. Now, it's not just that the wicked are going to be punished. It's that they're going to be punished for their idolatry and their wicked living that they refuse to repent of. Their idolatry and their wicked living that they refuse to repent of. Now, throughout all of this and even that description, texts like this can be a little unsettling for us. And there are really four ways that we can respond to this text. There's probably more than four, but I'm going to pick four. There are four ways that we can respond to this text. And shout out to Hunter with a little alliteration help this week. Um, But these are the four ways that we can respond to this unsettling text. Flippancy, fury, false righteousness, and finally the fear of the Lord. So we're going to walk through these. First is flippancy. This kind of judgment talk is crazy. It's crazy. There's not God at work through demons in the world to cause suffering to those who don't repent. That's crazy. There's no coming judgment. Jesus isn't coming back to judge. What that displays, a response of flippancy to this, showcases a flippancy to sin and a hardening of the heart to God's word. Ultimately, a I'm going to do what I want kind of attitude and an ease of conscience against sin. Now, this can be displayed certainly by non Christians who are not repentant of their sin, but can also be displayed by Christians. Remember, John is writing to the church, and his point in writing to the church is do not side with the empire, do not side with idolatry, do not run, do not be deceived by false teaching stay faithful to king jesus this kind of flippancy can be displayed by christians as well a quenching of god's spirit right you know you know what this feels like you feel conviction for sin and you immediately think but god is merciful i'm going to do it anyway and have a little bit of ease of conscience and you repent but you, you, you know you're just going to do it again. And then the next time, you feel a little less conviction. And then the next time, you feel a little less conviction. And then you continue down a path and get to a place in which you are like, how could I be okay with this? One step at a time. A little bit of hardening. This text is written to showcase to us That sin really is bad and it really is offensive to God. The ugliness of sin is really offensive to God. Exploitation, abuse, murder, injustice, oppression. These we can all see together and say, yes, that is ugly sin. But remember that all sin comes from the same fountain. Idolatry. All sin is born out of a worship of something other than King Jesus. Fundamentally, the reason we harm one another is because we are failing to worship and acknowledge Jesus. Meaning, even if my sin hasn't manifested itself to something that I consider to not be all that bad, that doesn't mean it's not offensive to the one true holy God of the universe. That my ignoring of Him My worship by giving myself fully to money or sex or comfort or ministry or grades or achieving or family or power. That my ignoring of him and worshiping of this isn't actually worthy of judgment. Idolatry, remember, is so offensive to God ultimately because of his love for us. Because he actually is the best thing possible for us. And He offers Himself freely to us. He is the best thing in the universe and says, come and worship me and experience me fully. Not only is it idolatry foolish because we reject the one place that we can find ultimate satisfaction, it's offensive to God because He is holy. He knows how life works best and when we reject Him for lesser loves, lesser desires, it offends Him in His holiness. Now what's the result of that? What's the result of those things? If we live a life quenching the Spirit, avoiding conviction, running away from those things, and worshiping other things, the result of that is spiritual darkness and suffering. Our culture, our friends, our families, our coworkers, even ourselves in our sin, we experience the result of spiritual darkness. Right? The feeling of lostness, unworthiness. Depression, anxiety. Now, let me be clear, not all of these are attributable to your sin, right? There's a very real uh, physical uh, realities that affect our mental health. There's very real, uh, you know, r- chemical imbalances that affect our, our mental health. All of those things are very, very real. But sometimes, it's okay to say that sometimes those things are the result of our sin. Sometimes those are the direct result of us not trusting in the Lord, of worshiping something else, and they are the natural outflow of those things. Meaning, because both of those things can be true, that means we actually, if we're to address those things, have to do it with all of the tools available to us. Doctors, medication, therapists, all of those things, and repentance and faith, and King Jesus. We need all of it if we're to walk through those things. Right? And saying that mental health isn't a result specifically of specific sins always or even generally or even most of the time does not deny the fact that sometimes it is. Sometimes it is a result of our sin. Sometimes it is a result of spiritual darkness that we are facing because we refuse to repent. Because we're clinging to something that Jesus says is not good for you. And we need to repent of that and then walk through all the other stuff, right? Again, I'm not saying that the repentance would cause immediate health and freedom from all of these things. We'll we'll talk about this, right? We don't need to pit these approaches against one another, right? But actually bring them together. Mental health care, therapy, medication are all signs of God's common grace to us to heal our darkness, and we absolutely need them. But we also absolutely need to take time to say, search me, O oh God. Is there anything in me that displeases you that I need to repent of and trust in the goodness of God? Let me repent of those things and run to you. Now again, it's really important to remember that that spiritual darkness that we are seeing in this is focused on judgment upon the unrepentant. But again, that doesn't mean that Christians don't also experience that level of suffering. This is just looking at a particular angle of it. Absolutely, Christians endure those things. And absolutely, it's not always a result of your sin. And and even mostly not a result of your sin. Result of the brokenness of the world around us and the brokenness of the fall, absolutely. And so we need to trust Jesus in the midst of those things. But we also can truly ask, is there something in my heart that I need to repent of that's causing me to just avoid spiritual health, avoid Jesus? It's a very real thing. The second response to a text like this, not flippancy, but fury. Some people, Christians and non-Christians alike, respond to texts like this with anger. How dare... Christians speak of judgment. How dare God speak of judgment? How dare God judge anyone? You may have, as I have on occasions, heard or even have said, if this is God, I don't want anything to do with it. This is what God is like. I'm out. I don't want anything to do with this. Friends, let me tell you, what the Bible declares for us is not what people have invented about God, but what God has revealed about himself. So, this is who God is. So our response cannot be, if God is like this, I don't want anything to do with that. That's a terrifying response, if he's really like this. Now, I want to pause for a moment and say, if you feel anger at this teaching, what I'm not saying is, okay, you get second doses of judgment, (laughs) right? What I'm saying is, let's actually explore why you feel that way. Let's ask some questions about why you feel anger at a text like this. Because first of all, we shouldn't delight in a text like this. If this text causes your heart delight, there are other problems that you need to repent of. Massively. Because God is not delighted by this. In Ezekiel, he says, do you think that I like to see wicked people die, says the sovereign Lord? Of course not. I want them to turn from their wicked ways and live. If this text causes delight in your heart, ask God to Search you and find why you need to repent of that because this should not cause us delight. Speaking of hell and judgment should cause us to want to weep, not to be delighted. So certainly we should not feel any level of delight or triumph. We should speak with trembling about these things. Secondly, we can ask, what causes your anger at this text? Is it a desire for repentance among others? Is it the result of being hurt by the church, by others who took the idea of judgment and used it against you, not in healthy ways, not in warning you and being for you and talking through things with you, but in beating you over the head with it? Is it because you disagree with God about things that He declares to be sinful? Let's explore that. Do we have righteous anger against the sins in this world that cause harm? Oppression, injustice, violence, abuse, exploitation. Do we direct this anger to the root of sin at all? The idolatry that is in the world not only out there, but in us as well. Do we see that God in in His all-seeing sees all the suffering of the world at the same time and has righteous anger for truly horrible things that we as humans do to one another. That he weeps with those who have been harmed. Do we share that? Sometimes it's not that we should move from anger to no anger. It's that we should move from anger, unrighteous anger, to righteous anger. That there are really real things that cause judgment. That there are real wicked things in the world and we should feel a level of righteous anger at those wicked things. And finally, are we willing to submit to the real God of the universe or are we content with an idol that we have created? If you never get through the scriptures, if you never get to a place that you're like, man, that's really hard for me to swallow, then I would suggests to you that you might be worshiping a God that you've invented and not a God that is sovereign over you. We're supposed to wrestle with some things because he's God and we're not. This isn't just something that people invented to feel good about themselves. This is God revealing himself to the world to say, there is a better way, which we'll get to in a moment. But, but this is the very real thing. Do we want him to shape us or do we want to shape him? The third response is false righteousness. This might be the response of someone who does feel delight at talking about judgment. If you feel delight in talking about judgment, hearing all this talk of the wicked being punished, and you feel pretty good because you're not like them, you have a false righteousness. I'm not, I'm not an idolater. I'm not an immoral sinner. Now, maybe we don't say these things outright. Sometimes we do. But usually we say them in more subtle ways. I doubt if I asked you for a show of hands, who thinks they're better than their neighbor, many of you would raise your hands. Maybe some of you would. I'm not asking for a show of hands, who thinks they're better than their neighbor, by the way. Uh, but there's subtle ways in which this shows up. Right? When you're listening to a sermon and you think of that one friend that needs to hear that sermon. Oh, I wish they were here for that. They really need to hear that one. Or the disdain that we feel for other people. If we feel disdain for other people made in the image of God, it's likely because we think we're better than them. Disdain in avoiding those we deem as worse sinners. We just avoid people. If judgment is inevitable, we'll just avoid the wicked. Let's just hang out with other Christians. Let's hang out together and let's avoid the wicked, right? That's a sign that we have bought into a false righteousness, that we think we're better. Judgment is surely coming, so we'll just hang out over here. If we have a lack of love and compassion for our neighbor and for our enemy, it's a sign that we have embraced some level of false righteousness. It's a sign not just of our own sinfulness, but of a view that we have false righteousness. Remember, this text does not speak of Christians judging other people. God judging. God alone. So any level of judgment that we experience, we should be very careful. Paul in Romans 2 says this, After describing the sin of the world, he says, You may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad, and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself. For you who judge others do these very same things. And we know that God in his justice will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? This leads us to the final response. The only place that we can find hope is in the fear of the Lord. Now this phrase, the fear of the Lord, is throughout the scriptures. And it means that we recognize rightly the glory of God and his holiness... And that we recognize rightly our own sinfulness before Him. And therefore our hopelessness before Him and our deserving of judgment. And then we flee to Him. We flee from the wrath of God to the only place we can. To God Himself because of His mercy. You see, the fear of the Lord, the response to hearing of judgment... In the fear of the Lord is to repent of our sins and run to the very place, the only place that we can run to avoid God's wrath, which is directly to God himself. It is God's kindness that leads to repentance. Repentance is the right response. Repentance, not perfection. Not perfection. What's the thing that this text identifies as the very thing, the defining thing for the wicked who receive judgment? What did it say? They refuse to repent. They refuse to repent. That that means that those who trust in Jesus, it doesn't mean that they never again commit idolatry. That they never again fall into an old pattern. That they never again sin and hate their neighbor. That they never again embrace false righteousness. That they never again pursue the wrong thing and do the thing that God told them not to do. Or left undone the thing that God told you to do. That's not what it means at all. It means that when, we, when God's Spirit showcases to us our sin, we repent of it. We repent of it. We turn from it. We ask for forgiveness and we seek for Jesus to make us whole. We fight against sin. We struggle against it. We turn. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, not trusting in Jesus and Him alone for salvation, hearing all of this, you need to ask yourself, what's my heart's response? If I'm not troubled by these things, I need to seek God And ask him, beg him, to convict your heart so that you would repent and trust in Jesus, in him alone, for salvation. Beg that God would awaken your hearts. Not because of his wrath and fury, but because of his kindness. Because in all of these things... We have already talked about, John has already mentioned, the way in which we escape these things is because God Himself came and endured His own wrath for us. Because God Himself came and said, I will make a way for you. Come to Me. I will forgive you of anything and everything. No one on the planet is too great a sinner to avoid to, to be be looked over from God's mercy. To be unable to repent and cling to Jesus because of his mercy. And no one on the planet is too perfect of a person to not need to repent of sin and trust in Jesus. Let the gospel awaken your heart. How, do, how does that work? How, do, how does that happen? Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 says this, Therefore, since God in His mercy has given us this new way, this new way of the gospel, we never give up. We reject all shameful deeds and underhanded methods. We don't try and trick anyone or distort the Word of God. We tell the truth before God and all who are honest know this. Friends, I'm not trying to trick or deceive anyone here or coerce you into this fear of judgment that causes you to run away from this thing. No, nope. I'm trying to tell you Jesus is wonderful. Judgment is real, just trying to tell you the truth. But Jesus is wonderful. And in that, in declaring that, we are trusting that the Holy Spirit would be at work to cause new life. If the good news we preach is hidden behind a veil, it's hidden only from people who are perishing. Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. Remember, spiritual darkness, exactly what we talked about blinding the minds of those who don't believe. Exactly what John is describing, Paul here is saying that's what happens. That's why when the gospel goes forth, some people believe and some people don't. It's not because the people who believe you here are any better or different from anyone else. It's because Jesus said light to your hearts. They're unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ who is the exact likeness of God. You see, we don't go around preaching about ourselves. We preach that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we ourselves, our servants, are your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, "Let there be light in the darkness," has made this light shine in our hearts so we could know the glory of God that it's seen in the face of Jesus Christ. If the judgment on the wicked is decreation, right? Descending into darkness, the renewal of the Christian is new creation. Jesus saying, Light into your heart. Jesus saying, I love you. Believe in me. The only reason any of us avoid this reality of judgment is because Jesus has said, I love you. And because someone came and embodied that reality and taught you the gospel. Someone came and gave you this truth about Jesus as Lord and the Holy Spirit awakened your heart. This is something that we ought to come with great humility and fear before the Lord because the only method of repentance is because the Holy Spirit has done something miraculous. You know who you'd be apart from Christ doing a miraculous work. I know who I'd be apart from Christ doing a miraculous work. We need the Holy Spirit to do this. Jesus says light to your heart and it awakens you from the darkness of Satan and judgment and you repent and trust in him. We now have this light shining in our hearts but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God and not ourselves. We don't need to be hard Christians. We need to be soft. We're like fragile clay jars. We have this incredible treasure. But friends, texts like this are really hard. They're really unsettling. They're really difficult because real people we know and love don't love Jesus. That's hard. That's why we hold this treasure in a clay jar. We're weak, we're vulnerable, and we need the power of Jesus to go forth in the power of the gospel to transform us because that's what he does, because that's who he is. So if you're a Christian, if you're trusting in Jesus and him alone and sitting here today, you're not troubled by any of this. You're not troubled by your own sin. You're not troubled by the sure judgment against the wicked and the unrepentant. You're not troubled by any of it you need to go home and beg the Lord to make your your heart soft. Beg the Lord to make your heart soft because you are in danger of hardening your heart over and over again, getting to a place of not repenting. If you feel no trouble for your sin, if when we come to the Lord's table each week, you have nothing to repent of, it's the most dangerous place to be. You're deceiving yourself. John tells us in 1 John, same John who wrote this, if we say we have no sin, we call God a liar. We're not any better. We need to humbly admit and repent. Hard hearts are not a sign of regeneration. And hard hearts look like no repentance. If you're a Christian trusting in Jesus and you are deeply troubled by this text... Maybe because you have a very soft conscience. You may be very aware of your own sin. Maybe so aware of your own sin that it leads to all sorts of self-doubt and self-hatred. Like actually, this conversation on justice actually uh, deteriorates my own mental health because I'm so soft in conscience and I'm so afraid. And to you I would say, your heart is soft and sensitive to your own sin and you feel like you're in darkness and you feel just the pinprick of conviction about idolatry and all of these things, you should be deeply encouraged that a softness of heart is the very thing that God is doing. That actually that is the sign that you've already been sealed by God. If you're like, oh my goodness, I'm so afraid of God's wrath, that's a sign that God has already done something in your hearts to draw you to himself. You see, the very thing that Satan wants to use to get you to doubt Jesus, you can use to trust Jesus more. Because Satan says, no, your doubts mean that you are not good. Look at how evil and sinful you are. Look at how you run from Jesus at the first sign of stress. Look at how you go back to that old sin every single time. Look at that. And you can say, yes, look at that. Jesus is wonderful. Because the reality is, my sin has already been paid for. I've already been sealed. Satan, your attacks have no power over me. When the locusts have no power over those who have been sealed by God, it's the reality that Satan has zero power over those who have the Holy Spirit. His only power is to accuse you of your sin. Jesus already took care of that. What else you got, Satan? Nothing. He's got nothing. So if you have a very soft conscience, you should be very encouraged that Jesus is doing a mighty work in you, that he loves you deeply. That because he loves you so deeply, he's made your heart soft and you will be able to endure whatever suffering comes because your heart is soft to the Lord and he will make you endure. It's not that you'll never succumb to idolatry. Idolatry or sin, it's that you'll repent of it when it comes. That's the sign of true faith, not perfection, repentance. Repentance. So if we have soft hearts, Jesus is deeply at work and you should be greatly encouraged and cling, not to his wrath, to his love and mercy because it's his kindness that leads you to repentance. So let's celebrate the kindness of God in the cross of Jesus Christ together. Let's pray together. Lord, this is... A difficult text. This is a challenging thing. This is deeply troubling in so many ways. And yet, Lord, we are trusting your spirit to be at work to soften our hearts, to lead us into repentance, to draw us to yourself by your kindness, to showcase for us your glory in the cross and in the resurrection to showcase for us the way in which You have conquered sin and Satan and death and the way that You will reign forever and ever and wipe every tear from our eyes. Would You draw us to Yourself in this? Jesus, would You be honored and glorified in all these things, we pray. In Christ's name, Amen. Amen. I invite you guys to stand now as we respond and sing together in worship.